The following is a JourneyWise Network production. Hey friends, welcome to the You Matter podcast. I'm Shane Stanford. About 20 years ago, I was at Willow Creek, a little over 20 years ago, a community church, and was uh, had gone up to be part of one of their church conferences. I was a church planter at the time and had heard so much good about them. And out comes this guy that I had not really known much about at the time, but that day really got me onto his work, and I became a great fan. And that, of course, is Lee Strobel, who was a teaching pastor at Willow Creek at the time, uh, a former investigative journalist who became uh, not only a believer, but also a great apologist uh, for uh, the faith. And so we are so pleased today to have with us Lee Strobel. Lee, welcome to You Matter. Well, thanks, Shane. Great to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you. Uh, in case there's people out there, which I can't imagine many, particularly this audience, that wouldn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about your testimony, your journey into the faith. Yeah, I was um, an atheist for much of my life. My background's in journalism and law. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper, and uh, my wife was kind of, I'd say, agnostic, couldn't put the pieces together, didn't quite believe had some vague maybe understanding but never really could put it all together and so she met a um, woman who was a christian and a nurse they became best friends went to church with her answered her questions and then leslie came up to me one day and gave me the worst news an atheist husband could get she said i've decided to become a christian and uh first word that went through my mind was divorce Ah. i was gonna gonna walk out sure um but then i thought maybe i could read rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in. So I, even as an atheist, I recognize that Christianity is really based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He clearly made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself, which, but so what? I could do that. But then I thought, you know what? If, if, if he uh, claimed to be the son of God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth. <laughs> and so I spent uh, two years of my life using my journalism training and legal training to systematically investigate the historical data concerning the resurrection of Jesus and other factors in terms of evidence for God. And uh, finally, on November 8th of 1981, I realized in light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become <laughs> a Christian. <laughs> And that's when I uh, repented of my sin, received forgiveness through Christ, and uh, uh, was adopted uh, into into God's kingdom. My life began to change, my values, my character, my morality, my relationships, my marriage, my worldview. I mean, all of these things over time um, began to change for the good. And uh, now, Leslie and I have been married for 51 years. Wow. have uh, two children who are both serving the Lord and uh, four grandchildren who one by one are coming to faith in Jesus. So it's been, it's been quite the adventure. Well, I just had, uh, we just had our first grandchild and there is oh. a difference between that, the, you know, as much as you love your child, there's something yes. about that grandchild. So it's congratulations on that. Thank you. It's awesome. My, my oldest granddaughter is getting ready to go to college next year. Oh, my so goodness. that shows how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrote the book, The Case for Christ. Was that the first uh, book that you wrote? No, I'd actually written, uh, before I was a Christian, I wrote a book. I did uh, a lot of the original investigation into the Ford Pinto uh, oh, scandal yes. and wrote a book called Reckless Homicide. I covered that trial of Ford Motor Company for reckless homicide, for which they were acquitted. 
um, and wrote a book about that before I was a Christian. Then I had written two other Christian books before I wrote Case for Christ. Mm. And so how was it using your investigative uh, skills mm. uh, to take on Christianity? Did you find that people were receptive to talk to you or mm. how, how did that sort of transcribe the way that you had been working and doing life in the yeah. secular world in terms of your faith? Well, first thing I found out was back then, uh, there wasn't a lot on a popular level to really wrestle with this issue. Today, there is. Today's a proliferation of books and videos and podcasts and all kinds of things for anybody that wants to investigate the historical data for Jesus. But back then, my goodness, I'm going to libraries. I'm doing interlibrary loans that take three <laughs> months to get a book. I'm, I'm in microfiche and museums. I mean, I'm uh, calling random scholars up and saying, hey, can I ask you a few questions? And um, I, what I found, uh, so the first thing I found is that there wasn't a lot of stuff available back then. But secondly, mm -hmm. I found that most of the scholars in this area love to talk about it. Yeah. So it's very easy to, to uh, give them a call and say, hey, you know, could, could you answer five questions for me? Um, and, and the other thing I learned, I don't know uh, if you had this happen, but when, you, when I was a kid, I was given this gift. It was a punching bag. It was like a, it was weighted on the bottom and it was a form of a clown. Yeah. And you would hit the clown and it would go backwards. But then because it was weighted on the bottom, it was inflatable, it would bounce back up. <laughs> and that's how I felt about my investigation. <laughs> I would hit Christianity with my hardest right hand jab mm. and it would go down, but then it would pop back up and there'd be answers and there'd be <laughs> other leads to follow. And, and I hit it again and it would bounce back up. And, and it really, that amazed me at the time because I honestly thought I could disprove the resurrection of Jesus in a, in a weekend. Sure. And and when did you know, uh, was there one particular issue or topic that you you saw, wow, this evidence is bigger than I, than I, than I understood? You know, it was really a cumulative case. Really? Uh, there wasn't any one thing that, uh, that proved it for me. It was really a, a, a cum accumulation of evidence from different sources and different mm. areas and so forth. I think one of the key ones, though, was I found seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, mm. that confirmed that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. And I found that very important because of all human beings who've ever lived in history, they were in a unique position to know for a fact whether Jesus really had returned from the dead. Yes. They talked with him. They ate with him. They touched him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to die for it. Now, how some of them died gets a little bit fuzzy in history. That's not the point. Their willingness to die is established by seven ancient sources. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I contrast that with, say, a, a terrorist today who, say, who says, I'm going to die for my faith. And he crashes an airplane into a building. Well, did he know for a fact if he died that way, he'd go to heaven? No, he didn't know for a fact. He just believed it very strongly because he was yes. taught it. But yes. he couldn't know it for a fact. And yet the difference is the disciples knew it for a fact, whether Jesus had mm. been resurrected and they were willing to die for it. That tells me something about the veracity of their claims. Well, and I think you, you've talked about this as well, that before they martyred themselves or were martyred, um, the fact that they would talk so negatively and write, have stories told so negatively about them, yes, you know, that that really kind of 
proves that, hey, this is a true story they're telling because they were willing to, you know, come off looking pretty bad as the disciples. Yeah, that's right. There's a, a criterion that historians use called the criterion of embarrassment. <laughs> and what it means is if you're analyzing an ancient writing like the Gospels and you're trying to determine, is it telling me the truth? One of the criterion you use is the criterion of embarrassment, which means if that ancient report is telling you something that's embarrassing to themselves or hurts their own case, they're probably telling the truth. Because if they're going to make it up, they wouldn't include stuff that was going to be embarrassing. Well, the great example is the women discovered the tomb empty, Jesus' tomb empty. Well, women's testimony was not in the first century Jewish and Roman culture uh, considered to be persuasive. They, yes. they were generally not allowed to testify in a court of law. They weren't considered credible. And so for the Gospels to report that women discovered the tomb empty hurt their case. In fact, we have a report in the second century of critics of Christianity attacking the faith because, oh, you can't believe that. Women discovered the tomb empty. So if they were going to invent this story of the empty tomb, they would have said John discovered the tomb empty or Peter discovered the tomb empty. But no, they say women. Why? It hurts their case. Okay. That means they're just telling the truth and they're just letting the evidence um, fall, you know, fall where it may. Guys, I want to tell you about a project that we have been working on for a long time and we are so excited that it is officially out in the world for you to get to be a part of. Yes. Shane, why don't you tell us a little bit about our newest book? Well, it's part of a Life Along the Way series. Jesus was referred to as the way, the first 200 years of the church is life. And, um, and so how do you walk along the way with Jesus? What we've done is taken all four Gospels and the first chapter of Acts. We've put them into chronological order and they've come out into 360 devotionals. And so in four 90-day devotionals, you can walk with Jesus every day in the same pattern and same that the Bible has it. And the first one is Jesus with us. It's the first 90 days. talks about the beginning, the prophecies of his birth and the the coming of the Lord, and then it talks about his birth and several years after that and just helps you to feel like you are at the very beginning, truly at the start of the journey of Jesus and what a powerful impact that can make in your life. So you and I have been doing this yes. for a year. We've been walking through 365 days with Jesus. And yeah. I think for myself personally, what's been so impactful about reading it in chronological order and, and reading it slowly, we don't, we're not skipping around uh, on what we like yeah. about what Jesus says and yeah. what he doesn't, right? We're spending time in all of his words yes. and getting to know him as a whole person. And so I think whether our listeners are um, have been walking with Jesus for a long time or maybe are just wanting to get to know Jesus, this is a great devotional for yeah. them. C.S. Lewis says, if you're going to tell the story, you need to tell the whole story. And yeah. this is the whole story. Yeah. Well, guys, I want you all to get a copy of this book. We'll put the links in uh, the show notes for you to be able to get a hold of it. It has been truly life transforming for me, and I want you to be a part of it as well. Join us on the journey. Well, and I think one of the most powerful parts of your argument, uh, if I remember going back to Case for Christ, it's been several years. I read it about five times, but it's been, <laughs> it's been a, little, a little bit of time since I read it, yeah. was the fact that it does come down to the resurrection. That really is the yeah. fine line. And uh, I'm going to ask you this question because I've taught several apologetics courses. Yeah. I tend to believe the Shroud of Turin is God's forensic evidence. Yeah. And I, especially now that uh, they've come back and said the 83 
uh, version of the scientific response that they didn't test far enough into the actual shroud. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the shroud? I'm just asking this from a personal yeah. standpoint. Sure. It's a great question. Um, Bernie, um, what was his name? Barry uh, Schwartz. I don't know if you mm -hmm. know Barry. Barry was the official photographer of yes. the Shroud of Turin. And he created, I think, a half a dozen life-size reproductions of it. And I was able a few years ago to stand in front of it and, and look at it uh, mm -hmm. closely. And I'll tell you, that is a eerie experience. It, yes. it, it is a very eerie experience. I'm about 75% there. Okay. Um, and I say that as someone who's probably not done the research you've done on it. I've, it's not been an area that I've studied extensively. I'm about to write a new book and I have a chapter in that new book on the shroud. Mm. And so I'm beginning my own investigation into it. So, so I don't have a firm conclusion yet. Um, I lean toward it being true, you know, when they sure. determined several years ago that it was actually a medieval origin yes um and then they determined later oh oops we made a mistake yeah. <laughs> we, we dated the, the a patch that was added to the shroud not the original shroud yes so that that erased that objection i know friends who are uh, great scholars who are convinced that it is authentic and um so i'm i don't i'm not saying it is or it isn't i don't know i lean toward it i hope in the next year or so i'll come to a conclusion well, but I, I respect your, your finding because, uh, you know, as I say, I've got good friends who are great scholars and, and they agree. Well, and I can't wait to read the new book, whatever. <laughs> What's that book going to be on? Just more It's going to be on the unseen world, the supernatural. Wow. I can't yeah. wait. That's yeah. going to be great. Well, you know, it, it's funny, Lee, because I think it brings us back to a general overview of the entire conversation about apologetics that yeah. uh, we're, I have half my friends who are Bible scholars believe it. Half my friends don't, but mm -hmm. all of them will say it doesn't matter one right. way or the other. And that's where right. they've, they've really you know anchored themselves deeply into their faith. Yes. Because that's what you really ask us to do at the end of Case for Christ is yeah. you have this evidence, but the importance of, they don't call it certainty for a reason. They call it faith. Yeah. Would you yeah. talk just a little bit about that sure. aspect? You know, I used to think as an atheist that faith meant you believed something that you knew in your heart couldn't be true. <laughs> um, and that's not what biblical faith is. Um, biblical faith is taking a step of trust in the same direction that the evidence is pointing. Um, we do this every day of our lives when we analyze very informally, you know, risks and things like that. And we take a step of trust in the same direction the evidence is telling us to go. And so, um, uh, it's very logical and rational. In fact, when I came to faith in Christ, I know a lot of people talk about a rush of emotion at that moment. I had the rush of reason ah, wow. um, that this made sense, that there was no other conclusion that held water the way that this conclusion did. Yes, we take a step, but it's in the same direction the evidence is pointing. Um, and, you know, my new book, uh, Is God Real? I deal not only yes. with the, the evidence of the resurrection, but also science and, yes. and philosophy and so forth and show that the, there's a robust case to be made. There are about 20 lines of evidence and arguments that point toward the truth of Christianity. And uh, for me personally, it only takes a couple, three, probably three lines of arguments that convince me. But um, um, to take a step of faith in the same direction is, I think, logical and rational. In fact, when, the, when uh, John the Baptist was imprisoned and um, appeared to have some questions or even doubts about <laughs> Jesus, he sent some friends to Jesus to say, are you the one we've been waiting for? We need to wait for somebody else. And how does Jesus react? He says, go back to John and tell him about what you have seen and heard. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, go back to John. Tell about the evidence that you've seen with your own eyes that convinces you that I am the one I claim to be. So it's, they go back and they tell John. And this this hasn't hurt John in the eyes of Jesus. It was no. after this incident that Jesus gets up and says, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. In fact, so, I, I was at It's Willow, okay to have questions. It is. And I, I remember I was at uh, Willow Creek when Erwin McManus was guesting mm-hmm. and, and actually preached that you know passage about the barbarian life of, uh, of John the Baptist. I think that was the title of it or something. But yeah. this idea that Jesus was not afraid of even John's doubts. Yes. And John yes. should have had a he should have been probably more secure than anybody. Absolutely. He once pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes lamb. away the sin of the world. Yeah. He pointed to Jesus and said, I've seen and I testify this is the Son of God. But then he gets cold feet. Mm. <laughs> and and you know what? He gets thrown in prison. Let's give him, you know, let's under, be understanding yeah. here. Sure. When tough times come into our lives, doubts often follow. Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting throughout my life as I've faced different aspects of illness. Uh, there have been a couple of times when I was about 50-50 in surgeries, whether or not they can control the bleeding. Um, it's usually the supernatural that I, I've never heard anybody else say what you just said about having clarity of reason. Mm. Um, I've had a couple, two moments in my life, Lee, where I've had deeply spiritual, supernatural, I believe, hearing from the Lord. Yes. W- one of them was uh, a lady in Mexico who was Bound, she was wife of a pastor, bound and determined to pray over me and heal me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and actually, I, when I, I grew up in a church, it was so traditional that when you raised your hand, they thought you had a question. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I grew up. And so I was it's, it had this very powerful spiritual moment where I, I tell people I thought she was going to try to Benny hand me. That's the only <laughs> way that I could explain it. Right. Her touching my forehead. And I went out. And I was wow. I was spending all my time trying to convince in myself, you know, I don't want to embarrass her. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I, I, you know, her sons had gone behind me, so I knew they thought I was going to pass out. Yeah. And while I was busy worrying about the facts, the spirit hit me. Yeah. But but at, since that moment, and that's been eight years ago. Since that moment, and I had gone through lots of education, lots of theology yeah. school. But it was in that moment of just that powerful spiritual connection that all of a sudden, truly everything did kind of have a place in reason. Yeah. It was like it was yeah. like this clear, and I, I very much became a fan of apologetics as an actual uh, discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit about apologetics because that's what the story of your life is. I know you've yeah. uh, the new Lee Strobel Center for Apologetics at uh, yeah. uh, Colorado Christian. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. You know, I think apologetics has several purposes. One of them is to deepen the faith of believers yeah. and to just reaffirm. To, I think the Holy Spirit uses it in people's lives to so just reaffirm to them that your faith is well placed. Second, I think it helps motivate believers to share their faith with others. Uh, when you feel equipped, you know, the, the Bible says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone mm-hmm. who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And when we feel equipped, we're more likely to share our faith. We're not afraid of getting a tough question in return. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, apologetics um, has an impact on non-believers, as it did in my case. Um, people yeah. who seek um, God um, find him often through the evidence. And um, I've seen countless people who have either read the case for Christ, um, 
you know, or another book that sets forth the evidence for the truth of Christianity. And um, God uses it to touch their heart and mind, and they come to faith. Um, that's what happened to me. So, uh, and there's another aspect to apologetics, and that is the way it leavens the culture. Mm. Um, I was talking to William Lane Craig about this, who's a, a famous um, um, philosopher. Yeah. And he said, you know, in Europe, um, it's hard to even have a gospel conversation with someone because that culture is so post-Christian. Yeah. And he said, when, when apologetics is active in a culture, it kind of plows the ground and, and says it's okay to consider this stuff. Um, and in Europe, we've kind of lost that opportunity almost. Yeah. Um, but um, one thing, thing apologetics does, it, it, it leavens the culture so that, that we, the, the seed of the gospel can be planted. And um, I think that was an interesting insight as well. I love that because as we move into a more post-Christian world in the yeah. United States even, um, what would you say to that person who is, I, I call it right on the edge of belief, but yet yeah. doubt is still such a strong part of who they are and, and yeah. how they see the world. What would you say to them just from a, a, a person who was an atheist to a turning believer and where do they begin? Yeah, I, you know what? I began in an unusual way in my investigation. I was an atheist, but I, I said a prayer because mm. I figured, what do I got to lose? If yeah. God isn't there, I've wasted 15 seconds. If he is, I've gained something. So I prayed and I said, God, I don't believe you're there. In fact, I'm convinced you're not. Mm. But if you are, if I'm wrong, if you are real, I want to know you. Wow. And there's nothing to lose with a prayer like that. If you say that sincerely, though, I believe it can, it can make a big impact. So I'd pray. Second thing I do is make it a front burner issue in your life. I mean, this everything, everything uh, depends on this question of whether or not God is real. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so uh, the third thing I'd, I'd say is be like an umpire in a baseball game. <laughs> Call a ball a ball and a strike a strike. Yes, in other sir. words, be willing to evaluate the evidence as objectively and honestly as you can. And then decide up front that when the evidence is in, you'll reach a verdict. Mm, and I think great. those kind of steps. And I think one other thing helps. If you can uh, crystallize, what is your objection? What What is the biggest, what I call spiritual sticking point that's holding you up in your journey toward God? If you can define that, if you can write it down, for instance, I don't believe a loving God could allow suffering in the world. Okay, write it down. Get it down on paper. Because yeah. once you identify it, there are so many great resources out there to be able to deal with your question. That's great. I love that because um, the work we're doing now at the Center for Applied Theology, we see a lot of people who are in those various places you talked yeah. about, but a lot of them are right on the edge, and they're wanting mm -hmm. to know, tell me where to start. Um what advice would you give to that person who's in the mix of it about sometimes, you know, it's not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Right. What would it you, in term, how would you encourage them? Well, you know, a number of years ago, I wrote a novel, a book of fiction. Um, my daughter's a novelist and she's had half a dozen books of fiction published. And That's great. Uh, she said, dad, you ought to write a novel, right? Okay. So I wrote a novel. Uh, it's kind of a John Grisham legal thriller and nobody bought it. It was a big flop, <laughs> big flop, but my point is, if somebody read my novel halfway through and then shut it and said, that Strobel's a terrible novelist, there's mm. too many loose ends to the plot. He doesn't mm. resolve all the tension between the characters. There's no resolution of, of the key issues of the book. I said, wait a minute, you haven't finished the book. 
you haven't you need to yeah. finish the book and sometimes i think people think that um because they ask a couple of questions didn't get good answers up front that that um there are no good answers well mm. maybe you haven't finished the book maybe there's other stuff out there that's worth evaluating and worth uh, investigating and you know I, sometimes people say well why doesn't god just end everything now and um consummate history right now and say you know, uh, the, the end of the book isn't here. Uh, the Bible says there's still people yet to come into the kingdom. And uh, so God's holding back the curtain of the close of history um, out of his love for those people yet to come in. So um, uh, I'd say have some patience. Um, the Bible says, the Bible does not say that everyone is going to find God. The yeah. Bible says that those who seek him will find him. Yes. Uh, Jeremiah says that. Uh, Hebrew says that. Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, those who seek God We'll find him. Those who knock, have the door open. Um, um, God honors those who sincerely seek him, it says in Hebrews. So, um, you know, make make it an important um, aspect of your life to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this coming year, 2024, I'm going to make this coming year the year that I delve deeply into this issue and come to a firm conclusion. Now, that's wonderful. Um, I, we only have a few minutes left, but I was going to ask you, based on your new book, was there anything in terms of crafting the new book that surprised you? Hmm. Yes. Um, I found out that 200 times a second, around the clock, someone on planet Earth is typing into a computer search engine basically the question, is God real? Wow. And that's what prompted me to write the book, Is God Real? Um, exploring the, the ultimate issue of life. Because everything hangs on it. You know, there was a debate a few years ago between an atheist and a Christian. And the atheist um, said something very interesting. I'll read it here. It's William Provine. Uh, mm. I think he was from Cornell University. And he said, you know what? I'll just be honest. If there is no God, if God is not real, then there are five things that are true. Number one, there is no evidence for God. Number two, there's no life after death. Number three, there's no absolute foundation for right and wrong. Number four, there's no absolute meaning for life. And number five, people don't really have free will. We're just biochemical machines. Hmm. Well, that's a lot hanging on the yeah. question of whether, <laughs> hello, I mean, what, what are more important than those issues? And so, um, so I wrote the book um, with a desire to deepen the faith of Christians, but also give them a resource to give away to someone who's spiritually curious, a family friend or a, um, um, a colleague at work or whoever. And um, so it deals with science, cosmology, the origin of the universe, physics, the fine tuning of the universe, biochemistry, the information inside every cell deals with philosophy. It deals with the evidence we've talked about, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, this isn't stuff coming from me. I seek out world's leading experts on these topics, people with PhDs, sometimes two PhDs, people from Cambridge University. I mean, these are major thinkers. Yeah. And I see my role in the kingdom as kind of a conduit between the scholars and the scholarly academic community and the everyday community. So I use my skill as a journalist to interview them with the tough questions I had when I was an atheist and then simplify it so I can understand it and and force them to explain it in a way that all of us can get. And, and I figure if I get it, anybody can get it. <laughs> so I try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, as someone once said. I hear you. And uh, so that's a new book, Is God Real? Well, and um, we just interviewed David Wilkinson, who's a pastor and theologian at Durham University in England. He's also an astrophysicist. So he's mm. got two PhDs. And uh, we were talking, it's called Messy Questions, was the name of the series. <laughs> 
And he said something, though, that he said God will unveil as much or as little of God's self as is needed for whoever's investigating it. Yes. So that they both have enough to move on, but yet also have enough faith to be to be unafraid of the future. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed J.P. Moreland, who's a Christian philosopher, a number of years ago, and he said, you know, God walks a fine line. Um, on the one hand, he wants to make his um, existence uh, known to those who sincerely seek him, mm. but he wants to remain sufficiently hidden for those that don't want to know him, and, and, and so that he doesn't violate their free will. And uh, in my book, Is God Real?, I deal with two big objections to Christianity— uh, number one, if God is real, wise, or suffering. But then the number two objection in the world today is, if God is real, why is he so hidden? Ah. And um, part of this is, is what you said. I think God modulates his um, the evidence for him in a way uh, so that the maximum number of people will come into the kingdom um, using his omniscience. And uh, to respect the fact that he's given free will to people to make a choice not to believe um, and to live with those consequences, uh, if that's what they so desire. I think that shows God's love for us. Um, To our listeners, I just want to say, go to LeeStrobel.com. You'll not only be able to see how you get this latest book, but he has all of his books there, which is quite a trove now of of just some of the best uh, writing in evangelical Christianity and even if you don't come from that tradition, the conversation is just fantastic. And I, th- I would encourage you to do that. Um, Lee, we always ask one final question of all our guests, and that yeah. because the name of the podcast is You Matter, where do you think you matter most right now in terms of God's work in his kingdom? Oh, I don't know. You know, when I wrote Case for Christ, um, I pictured it like a uh, a, a a pop-up hit in Wrigley Field during a Cubs baseball game. I'm from Chicago. And, you know, you hit a pop-up and it goes to center field and it should have been caught by the center fielder. But instead, the wind of Chicago takes it out for a home run. And, you know, I believe I have have very little to offer. Um, But God, in his sovereignty, uh, is able to take the, the minuscule efforts that we make to serve him and to share the gospel and so forth and the wind of the Holy Spirit can take that far beyond how hard we hit the ball, you wow, know. So I, I see myself as a sinner saved by grace. And, um, you know, God has taken my journalism training and used it to, to um, uh, give evidence for the faith to people. But I, I give him all the credit because, uh, you know, did I hit the ball? Yeah, I wrote the book. I hit the ball, but it should have been caught by the center fielder. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit has taken it for far beyond what I ever deserve. Well, you have, uh, I'm a huge baseball fan. Our first <laughs> guest was Johnny Bench. Oh, uh, no kidding. We, we got awesome. to interview Johnny Bench, and I'm a huge Reds fan, but he talked about loving to play in Wrigley Field for that reason. He said it can work. He says when it's working for you, that's one thing. When it's working against you, that's something else. Well, Shane, if you're a a baseball fan, I'll tell you this real quick. Uh When I was a toddler, um, I was kissed on the cheek by Ernie Banks. Oh, wow. So I've been kissed by, so I have to be a Cubs fan the rest of my life. uh, Of course you do. Yes. (laughs) Sir Ernie, man, he was, he was something. Well, Lee, thank you so much for doing this. We have loved this conversation. And again, I would say to those who are listening, um, 
God's not afraid of your questions. God's not afraid of your inquiry. In fact, he covets that. He wants to be in that conversation with you. Uh, don't let anything stand in way of that. And we want to say thank you to our guest, Lee Strobel. Thank you, Lee.